All right, I'm going to ask you a question, and if you have your books out and you're getting ready to take notes, get your pen in your hand because I want you to write a word down, okay? Are you ready? Okay, what is one thing that you would like to change about yourself? You can only choose one. One thing that you really want to change about yourself. Write it down. My guess is that you pretty quickly identified an attitude, a behavior, a pattern of activity because you've been frustrated for quite some time, right? Because this is kind of an area of your life I bet you haven't really had a lot of success changing. Okay, I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to share mine with you. It's healthy eating and exercise. I would love to change my daily routine to prioritize healthy eating and exercise. But you know what that requires? It requires making a menu plan, shopping at the store, coming home from a hard day of work, making meals, getting into the gym, lifting weight to bring muscles, getting cardio exercise to get my heart rate up. Like, I, yeah, I want to do all of those things, but honestly, at the end of the day, I'm tired, <laughs> and I don't want to anymore. <laughs> and isn't that the struggle, that, that from 30,000 feet, we have this grand ideal of how we want to change. We want to change a behavior, a habit, an attitude, a perspective. And yet, when it gets down to the practical application of change, we often just don't have the grit to choose the greater good. In the moment, actually, it, we just don't feel like it anymore. Anybody? Is that true for just me, honestly? Like, am I alone here? Okay. We're all in this together, right? So, so we, get, we get stuck in these familiar patterns, and then we repeat the same cycles over and over again, and we end up choosing our feelings over the disciplines that will actually lead us to ultimate freedom. So whether it's a, a bad habit or it's an addictive pattern or it's a, a hot temper or a laziness, a lazy routine, the reality is that, that change is a real struggle, isn't it? Even when it's a matter of life and death. There was a recent study that examined um, people who had gone through heart bypass surgery. They actually surveyed uh, 600,000 people who had gone through a heart bypass procedure. And these people, they were told that their heart bypass was actually just a temporary fix to a much greater problem. And so their doctors told them very specifically that after their heart bypass, they were actually going to need to do many things to have extended life. They were going to have to change their diet they were going to have to change their habits of, of drinking and smoking. They were going to have to exercise regularly, and they were going to have to reduce their stress. And their doctors told them that this was going to be a matter of life and death, that this heart bypass was not life. It was just a Band-Aid. They needed to change their, their patterns. So you would think that after going through a surgery like that and after meeting face-to-face -face with your doctor and being told exactly what you needed to do to have a longevity of life, you would think that these patients would, would do that, right? But the survey indicated that 90% of the people who had this heart bypass surgery did not make any changes in their life. They didn't do any of those things. 
They didn't stop drinking. They didn't stop smoking. They didn't start, stop eating bad foods. They didn't start exercising, and they didn't reduce stress. Why is it that when it's so clear to us that change brings life, that instead we choose things that bring death? Well, James is challenging us to change. Part of growing up in our faith means that we're able to respond rightly to God and his word. We are no longer children who only make emotional and impulsive decisions. We have wisdom now from God's word. Plus, we have life experiences of his trustworthiness in our lives. So we actually can grow up in our faith. James is wanting us to make very deliberate choices about how we navigate the the trials and the, the difficulties of life. That's what he's been talking to us about. He wants us to actually obey God's word with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So let me review for you kind of where we've been in the first chapter of James to put this next passage in context. If you remember in the last couple of weeks, James has has been, began his letter by challenging us to think about how we respond to trials. Remember, he's been encouraging us to persevere. He's been telling us we need to persevere in our trials, and he's been reminding us that tests and temptations can be met in victory with Christ. He's been telling us that God offers us his wisdom through his word, and we can use his wisdom to navigate the difficulties that we have in life. And then remember last week, he talked to us about promising us this great reward, this crown of life, this eternal blessing when we persevere with him in the difficulties of life. Well, now James is challenging us to think about how we respond to truth. Most specifically, how do we respond to the truth of God's word? He is going to be addressing for us in this passage the relationship between belief and behavior between faith and obedience, between theology and action, between being a hearer and being a doer. He's challenging those relationships. Basically, he's cha- these are two sides of the same coin, right? They have to go together. You have to believe and behave. You have to listen and do. You have to think and act. He's telling us these are two sides of the same coin, and they have to go together if our faith is going to have any lasting value. So in the same way that the heart patients ignored the counsel of their doctors, it's easy for us, James is telling us, to hear the word of God, maybe through a sermon or through a podcast or through our River Bible study, and then never actually let the underlying message of that word sink into our hearts. So how often do we go to a a service, a church service, and we walk away and we talk about the elements, right? Oh, what did you think about the music? What did you think about the pastor? What did you think about this or that? And we, we, we evaluate it based on all the different elements, but we never actually talk about, oh, well, how did that word impact your heart? Where do you feel challenged to, ab- to ob- uh, apply what you've heard this morning? We don't, we don't engage at that level. We engage at a superficial level. So the question is, does the word of God truly change your life? That's what James is asking us. Does what you, and what I'm asking you is, does what you, what you hear, what you read, what you study, what you learn, does it actually travel from your head to your heart? They say it's 18 inches from here to here. Does what you take in here actually translate down into your heart? Or does it just stay in the storehouse of your mind where you've accumulated all the other 
factual information, data points that you've learned your whole life. So this is what James is putting his finger on. It's, ah, it hurts. We feel it. He's challenging us in the deepest places of our spiritual life. The heart is actually where life change occurs. It's where belief and behavior meet. It's where understanding is able to form new attitudes. It's where sin becomes more than just a word that we hear in the Bible, but it's where sin becomes a a recognizable activity or action or behavior that becomes despicable to us. It's where our hearts actually not only understand what sin is, we actually respond to it in such a way that we want to radically extricate it from our lives. The heart is the place where lasting change occurs. And so when the heart is transformed, then obedience will flow out naturally. So James is going to tell us three kind of important things in this week's passage that I want to lead us through. The first, in James 1, 19 through 21, he's going to challenge us to receive the word humbly. Then in James 1, 22 through 25, he's going to challenge us to obey the word wholeheartedly. And then in James 1, 26 through 27, he's going to challenge us to practice the word religiously. And what he, I think he wants to say to us this morning is that obedience to God is the natural, flows naturally out of a changed heart. When our hearts are changed, we will naturally want to obey him. So let's jump in to the first part, James 1, 19 through 21. So the first thing that James does is he's reminding his listeners of something that he knows they already know. So he's repeating himself. He's telling them, you already know this, but let me tell you this again. He says, know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, I know in your engagement with your questions this week, you had a lot of opportunity to apply this to yourself and apply it to your personal relationships. This is often how we read this text. We think, oh, yeah, I need to be slow, quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And that is true. But I want to explain to you that is not the context in which James is saying these things. James is actually giving us three instructions about how we are to respond to the word of God. So, he says, you're to be quick to hear. That means, hurry up and listen. You know, we know that in our engagements with each other, we are often so hurried to speak, right? When we're talking with another person, we're almost waiting for them to take a breath so that we can interject our thought. That's how we, we do relationships, especially as women. We have so many things we want to share with each other. But even as, we're, and even as we're listening, we're often listening, but we're thinking about what we're going to say next or where we're going to take the conversation as soon as there's a pause. The same is true, though, as we engage with God's word. We may be kind of listening on the surface as we're reading a passage or listening to a sermon, but simultaneously we can be making up excuses for our behavior or we could be rationalizing why this scripture or that scripture doesn't actually apply to me. But the Bible reminds us that it's by listening that we hear the word of God and are moved to respond in faith. Romans 10, 17 says, So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Those of you who are moms, think about how fast you respond to the cry of your own baby's voice. You know that sound 
where your babies cry, you know it. And when your baby cries, your gut just tightens. And you can't rest unless you either drown out that cry with so much loud noise that you can't hear it, or until your baby stops crying. Well, this is how James is saying we're to respond to the Word of God. We're to be listening to God's Word with rapt attention, listening to His words, ready to respond, just as fast as we would if our baby cried and we know we got to rush into the other room. Do you listen to God's Word with that kind of attention? That's what James is challenging us to do. Well, then he says, slow to speak. Have you ever heard that prayer... Uh, Lord, fill my mouth with worthwhile stuff and nudge me when I've said enough. (laughs) That's a good one, right? Lord, fill my mouth with worthwhile stuff and nudge me when I've said enough. They say, actually, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. So James is reminding us that we need to approach God's word with humility and then be eager to hear from him, which means that we have to be quiet. We have to be ready and responsive to actually listen to what he has to say by by holding back our own speech. I think too often we come to God's word anxious to justify ourselves or anxious to argue with God about his word. Okay, just think about how you respond to this verse. Luke 12, 33. It says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. How do you respond to that verse? You might... First of all, think, oh, well, he's not really talking to me. (laughs) Sell my possessions and give to the poor. Or you might think, well, that was for that time and that culture. That's not for for today. Or you might say, well, hey, I just took a load of stuff of last season's clothes to the Goodwill last week. (laughs) Check. You see, we immediately take a verse and we start to spin how it actually might apply to us or not apply to us. But when we approach God's word with humility, we remain quiet before him. We allow him to speak his word into our hearts. And maybe what he wants to speak in that moment is, hey, have you become too attached to your stuff? Are you becoming materialistic? Is there an opportunity for you to share with someone in need? Hey, you know that family down the road whose husband walked out and left that mom with four kids? Could you bring her some groceries this week? You see, when we sit before the word of God and we allow him to speak his word into our hearts, we can hear things from him that we can respond to. We can go and be the hands and feet of Jesus to someone in need. Rather than just immediately going into a defensive posture before the Lord and explaining to him why that doesn't apply to me here and now. Then he tells us to be slow to anger. My husband um, pointed out to me this week that I said something critical about a person that I actually don't know anything about. He was telling me a story about someone, and, and I interjected a very evaluative statement about that person as he was telling me this story. And then he kind of paused and told me the rest of the story, which made my evaluative statement really judgmental and inappropriate. And it was like, ouch. Don't you hate that when people point out your sin, especially when it's your husband? You know, I was too quick to speak. I was too slow to listen. I was, I wasn't angry, but I got angry a little bit after he pointed out my sin. (laughs) 
And you know, it's when we're angry that we often speak too quickly, right? And we say too much. It's in the heat of the moment when our anger is sort of raging that we just sort of let it go. We just speak freely. Things just come out of our mouths. And, um, and then later, oftentimes, we regret those things, don't we? I mean, have any of you ever had that kind of an argument with your husband where you just let it rip? And you say things in the moment because you're angry that you actually can never unsay. They can't be unsaid. Or things are said to you that can't be unheard. Right? Think of the apostle Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane. When the soldiers came in to arrest Jesus, he reacted in this burst of anger. He took out his sword and he was going to cut off the ear of the soldier. He, was, he reacted so fast. He wasn't remembering the words that Jesus had told him about what was going to happen. He almost made things a lot worse for Jesus if Jesus hadn't stopped and actually put that ear back on and mended the damage that had begun. We get into trouble when we're slow to hear, quick to speak, and quick to respond in anger. And so Proverbs 17.27 says, Whoever restrains his words has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. The reason I think we get angry about God's word is that it tells us the truth about ourselves. You know, it's painful when the word reveals our sin, when it exposes our hard hearts, our attitudes, our behaviors. And so we can respond in defensiveness and anger towards God's word. The word actually exposes our innermost thoughts and actions and, and, and reveals our unrighteousness before God. That's what James is telling us. It's the word that makes us angry because it, it, it exposes our unrighteousness before God. Now, don't be mistaken. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you are in righteous standing before God through Christ. That positional Righteousness never changes once you've received Christ as your Savior. But the Word exposes our sinfulness, our filthiness, our unrighteousness. And so that's why James is saying, he's just telling us to deal with it. He's saying, get rid of it. He's so straight up with us. He says in verse 21, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. The image is like, get rid of it. It's like taking off this garment, taking off this coat. It's a poor woman's ragged coat that you wore in with the world. And it's, it's covered with all the dirt of the world's godless values. And it's stained with all the sin of your previous life, your moral sin of your life apart from Christ. And he's saying, get rid of that. Jesus has given you another kind of coat. He's given you a beautiful coat that is pictures the, the, the coat that the high priest wore in the throne room before God, the most holy of places, that's the coat you get to wear now. He's like, put that coat on. And he invites us to receive with humility the word of God that's been written on our hearts. He's like, that's not who you are anymore. You are a daughter of the king. You stand before God clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You have the word of God written on your hearts. This takes us back to Ezekiel 36. In this passage in Ezekiel, um, Ezekiel is reminding us that it's the spirit of God through the word of God that changes our hearts. God is speaking to his people who have been scattered and he's telling them how he's making them new by giving them a new heart. 
He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You see, the first step towards real heart change is to humbly accept the word planted in you. God has planted in you a new heart. And the first step towards real heart change is to humbly accept the word that has been planted in you. Now, I got to rewind for a moment and ask you this. First, has the word of God been planted in you? Have you heard the good news of Jesus? Have you received him as your Savior by simply agreeing with God that he is Lord and Savior who died on a cross for your sins and given you as a gift his Holy Spirit? If you aren't sure whether you have received Jesus yet, if that word has been planted in your soul, come speak to me or speak to your river leader Don't let the opportunity pass you to know that this is so in your life so that you can grow and mature like James is teaching us this year. But if you know that the seed has been planted in your heart, you know that you have a relationship with Jesus, I want to ask you, what is the condition of your heart right now? Will you think about that for a minute? If your heart were a type of soil, would it be hard and cracked? Would it be rocky? Would it be full of thorns and thistles? Or is it fertile and fresh, ready for God to make your life fruitful? There's, Jesus teaches about these four different soils in Luke 8, which I am going to just let you read this week um, for some additional reading. Just read Luke 8, the parable of the soils. But in this, he talks about how the heart condition impacts how we respond to his word. So in this parable, the the soil, the ground, is the heart condition, and the word of God is the seed. And so he talks about um, uh, the hard heart is the heart where that soil beside the road is really packed down. It's really hard. And so when the seed falls on that soil, it can't even put down roots. It can't even germinate. The heart is too hard even to hear and receive the word of God. And then there's the the shallow heart. This is the rocky soil where the seed, the word, falls upon that kind of a heart, but it can't get through the rocks to put down very deep roots. It just goes a little ways, and then the rain comes, and the whole plant washes away. It just can't sustain because there's there's hardness in in that soil. And then there's the crowded heart. That's the thorny soil. So this is a heart where there's a lot of unrepentant sin. And the word of God comes into that kind of a heart, but there's thistles, and the thistles bristle at the word of God, and it can't thrive. But then there's the fruitful heart. That's the good soil. That's where the word actually lands on on a heart that's been prepared, stirred up, cultivated, tilled, fertilized, ready to receive the seed, the word of God, and is able to, to bring forth new life and eventually to be really fruitful. So will you come to the word with humility this week and be ready to respond to the Lord 
by being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to repent of your sins. I think it's so encouraging to remember that that we are not who we once were once we've received Christ as our Savior. We actually do have a new heart and a new spirit within us. We have already been changed by the word that's been implanted in us. And then we can, as we come before God in his word humbly, we can allow him to grow us and mature us and bring fruitfulness into our lives. Well, next, James is challenging us to demonstrate the reality of our changed lives by putting our words into action. He tells us now we have to obey the word wholeheartedly. He says in verse 22, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. He's saying if we, if we hear the word but we don't respond with any kind of change in our attitudes or actions, then we haven't really listened because God's word evokes action, plain and simple. James has just previously compared the word to a seed that falls on a, a type of heart, and now he's comparing the word to a mirror. And he's saying that this, this word will reflect back to you who you are. Now, how many of us could actually survive getting up and ready in the morning without a mirror? If we didn't have a mirror to put our makeup on, if we didn't have a mirror to do our hair in the morning, the mirror, as we know, shows us the truth about ourselves, right? I now have a big magnifying mirror. And it, it is because I have the beauty of unwanted facial hair coming out every morning. And I must tweeze it or I'm a scary sight. Aging is no fun, is it? But thank God for mirrors that show us the truth about ourselves so we don't put that ugliness out on everybody else we, we see all day long. Well, in the same way, God is saying that God's word is a mirror to our souls. His word is meant to reveal reality. And so how often do we then just take a very quick glance at our souls as we see clearly as, we, as the word of God sort of reveals truth to us and then we look the other way? Or worse yet, we see and we fail to respond to what we've seen. Again, James is putting his finger right on the pulse of our lives. He's saying it matters that we put the truth of God's word into action in our lives. It matters. It's not enough, he's saying, to like read a devotional or to attend a church service or to come to Bible study or to listen to a podcast. If we say that the Bible is the living word of God and it speaks truth about God and about ourselves, and then we go out and we live as if it doesn't matter, as if we've just forgotten all of that, then he says, we're deceiving ourselves. He says, you should ask yourself what you actually really believe if you're able to do that. Now, many, many people in the United States show up for church on Sunday and amen and hallelujah and say, I absolutely believe this with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then they go out and they live Monday through Saturday as if they didn't. Brendan Manning wrote in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, he said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips 
then walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. This is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Here's another example. I'm um, an adjunct professor at Western Seminary, and my students can take classes either by auditing them or by taking them for credit. So if they choose to audit a class, they actually pay a little bit less, but they can still come and sit in the classroom, and they can listen, and they can participate. But the difference is that if you're auditing a class, you don't have to read the books because you don't have to write the papers. You don't have to take notes in class because you don't have to take any of the tests. You basically come and experience listening, but you don't have to do anything with what you've learned. I think this is what James is saying. Are you just an auditor of the gospel? Are you just showing up and listening? Or are you actually a Christ follower? Are you actually taking what you're hearing and applying it to how you live out your daily life following Jesus? James is telling us that being a Christ follower is actually a life of movement. It's not a static life of hearing God's word and remaining unchanged. It's, it's a life that's propelled forward by motion. It's vibrant and growing and active. It's a journey that's characterized by obedience to God's word. James goes on to say that this kind of faith, though, it takes perseverance and it takes intentionality. In verse 25, he says, But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Can you remember the last time that you ever really intently looked at something? Like... Maybe it was a sunrise and you stopped everything to watch it, the colors. Or maybe it was a rainbow and you just put everything down and peered out the window and watched just the beauty of something in in God's world. I was outside in my patio maybe about three or four weeks ago and this hummingbird came and just, just kind of stayed right about here, right about my view, and I I just put down everything. I couldn't believe that he'd come so close. And I was just marveling at that needle-like beak that he could stick into the flowers and to get the nectar. And then I was marveling at the sound of his wings just a million times a minute fluttering and what that was like. And I just, it captured me just in this moment to, to look so intently at something, to really study it, not to just blow by it like we do everything else in life. And James is challenging us to, to examine God's word this way. He's saying that we should look at God's word with penetrating absorption. That's what he's saying, penetrating absorption. Not with a casual glass, glance, but with deep contemplation of God's truth. He calls it the law of liberty, which is another word of saying the gospel of the good news. The law being the Old Testament law, liberty being freedom in Christ, law of liberty being the culmination, the completion of the Old Testament law in Christ, which brings freedom. This is why I think this is why we gather every week here at the river, right? We're here actually to look at God's word with penetrating absorption. We're going through it slowly. We're thinking about it. We're discussing it. We're we're taking it deep into a place of contemplation. 
Your river leaders are here to encourage you to persevere, to pray for you. Your group members are here to help you glean even greater understanding of your passages by what they gleaned as you share in your discussion groups. I'm here to help bring perspective and context and to challenge you to apply it to your personal life. You know, together, this is what we're doing very intentionally. This would make James so happy. So the second step toward real heart change is to hide God's word in your heart. To hide God's word in your heart. Throughout all of history, from the very beginning, God told his people not to forget his word. Over and over again, he told them, do not forget my words. He gave them his law, and he exhorted them to remember it. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, this is what he said to his people. He said, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. He's like, don't forget my word. Remember it. Whatever you have to do, do it so that you remember my word. How much would you say that you value scripture? How important is God's word to you? God wants us to remember it. He wants us to bury it in our hearts and minds and always have it before us. He wants us to memorize it. When you memorize scripture, you'll have that perfect word to speak to your children when they need a word a word of wisdom from you. You'll have the perfect words of comfort to speak to your friends. You know you don't walk around all day with your Bible in your hand ready to open up to a passage which you first have to look in the index to see where that passage is. But if you bury it in your heart, it just comes out. You're just able to say to a person in need, this is what God would say to comfort you. Or when you're discouraged or you're going through your own trials and temptations and tests, when you have God's word buried in your heart, you can recall it to renew your mind, to think differently, to change your perspective. Will you consider taking some verses from James this year and memorizing them, burying them in your heart, hiding God's word in your heart? There's so much wisdom Maybe it's James 1, you know, count it all joy, my sisters, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness can have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What if you just took one or two verses and hid them in your heart so that you could pull them up when you needed them to bring encouragement to your own soul? Lastly, James is exhorting us to practice the word religiously. He says in verse 26, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this, person is worth, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Martin Luther once said that a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Honestly, I don't like the word religion. I wish I could put something else in there. 
I think the word religion um, has a lot of negative connotations in our Northwest post-Christian world. It's a word we don't understand very much. I like to talk about being a Christ follower. But I'll tell you, James has a specific person for talking about religion. And I want us to understand what he means. He is telling us, he is using this word to describe what true religion is. And he's using it to describe a lifestyle characterized, um, a lifestyle of obedience to God. And it's characterized in three different ways. First of all, he's saying that true religion is characterized by controlled speech. In other words, when we control our speech, it indicates that we truly have a changed heart. He's actually summarizing what he heard Jesus teach. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. He said, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. James is going to talk to us a lot about what comes out of our mouths, but he knows that speech is actually a reflection of what's inside. And so he says that if our speech is uncontrolled, then our religion is meaningless. What kind of testimony do we have about what we believe about God if we don't have a controlled speech? He's saying it's all in vain. The tongue is the best test of our, a person's true religion. He's telling us that we need to beware. We need to be careful about what comes out of our mouth because what comes out of our mouth is a reflection of what's in our hearts. You know, are you angry? Are you cynical? Are you frustrated? Are you bitter? Are you faithless? It's going to come out one way or another. It's going to come out your mouth. And it also is going to come out in the tone in which you speak. We can't control it. We think we can, but we can't. Because there's moments where no matter how hard we try to control our speech, there'll be knee-jerk moments where it'll just come out. I always know if I stub my toe and a swear word comes out, my heart is not in a good place. And if it doesn't come out, I know my heart is in a good place. Because there's moments where it just comes out. And James is saying, what comes out of your mouth is a reflection of what's in your heart. So you need a transformation of your heart to make a lasting change in your speech. And I'm going to add, beware how you communicate via text and social media. You see, we live in a world where we can actually express what's in our heart with our fingers on a keyboard. Things can come out that don't actually have to come out of the mouth, but they come out in our communication in this technological world in which we live. Be careful, because in those contexts, you don't have even tone of voice to soften the words you say. The second thing he says is that um, a lifestyle of obedience to God is a life of sacrificial service that cares for the poor and the needy. He's saying true religion is characterized by compassion for the poor and a sense of obligation to help. There are widows and orphans and people in our community who are helpless and by the nature of God, he is a defender of the weak. He is a sustainer of the downcast. He entrusts their care to his people, to us. So when our hearts are transformed by the gospel, then we actually begin to see people all around us. And we actually delight in providing comfort for them, providing things that they need, providing care and provision. Also, it's not always about writing a check. It's not always about you know, 
giving a donation to your favorite ministry. More than that, I think it's about showing up. It's about sharing the love of Christ with someone in need, expressing God's love to people who are down and out in a variety of ways. And lastly, he says um, that it's a lifestyle characterized by separation from the ways of the world. Personal purity is so important to God. As his children, we are called to be in the world, so physically we're in the world, but spiritually we're not of the world. So our lives need to look very, very different than our unbelieving friends and neighbors because we have a personal relationship with God and we have his word that governs our lives. We live a very different life. So if, our, if the unbeliever looks at our hypocrisy and finds it unbelievable, might that same person look at our personal purity and righteousness and love for poor people and, and integrity in, in living out the word of God and our love for God in his word and actually be compelled to believe? It's a powerful and impactful way to live your life in a world that desperately needs hope. So the third step towards real heart change is to examine yourself carefully. Examine. Look inside and see your heart carefully looking over it. We must look in the mirror of our souls and not be afraid of what we see. I think the reason we turn away so quick is that there's shame, there's guilt, there's ugliness there that we just don't want to see about ourselves. But we have to give, receive grace because we're all on a journey of transformation. We're all growing up in our faith. We're all in the process of learning out the reality of what it means to believe and how that manifests itself in the attitudes and actions of our life. And it takes time and it takes patience. But it also takes an attitude of humility toward God and toward his word. And it takes some practice of taking God's word and hiding it in our hearts. And then what flows out of our hearts becomes evidence of the transformation that, that occurred when the word was planted in you originally because your heart was soil that was fertile and receptive. And so God's word can grow. And the process of life is a process of growth and transformation. Nobody arrives transformed until we see Jesus face to face. So James is just encouraging us. He's saying, practice obedience to God's word so that our lives will reflect the true faith we profess to believe. Obedience to God just is, begins to flow naturally out of a heart that has been truly changed. So go back now and look at that word. Maybe it wasn't a word about your change of your soul. Maybe it was a word like mine, change of a beha behavior. But whatever your word is, whatever you need to change in your life that you'd like to change, God can give you the power and the desire and the strength and the truth to make real lasting changes, changes that will bring life. So let me pray about that. Father, I just want to say thank you, first and foremost, for telling us the truth about ourselves. It's not always pretty. We... We don't always respond rightly to your word. We argue with you over things that we don't like to hear. We rationalize. We justify. We um, dismiss. Lord, we're not always humble enough to come before you and just listen, to receive from you what you want to say to us. And so, Lord, would you help us with that? Would you help us to come before you and to have ears to hear what you really want to say to us? And then would you give us the courage to actually do what you say? 
It might be very different for each one of us, but I know that you're always seeking to call us into greater intimacy with yourself. You're always wanting to grow us up. You're always wanting to get us to trust you more fully and to see you for who you are and to believe that we're not living the life we used to live. We're living a life tethered to you in your power, by your truth, by your spirit. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us grow into maturity by trusting you and truly choosing to do what you tell us because you are good. And we want to have lives that are fruitful, abiding in you, fixed on you. But we need your help, Lord. We ask this in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.